today is taken from Luke 15, verses 1 through 32, and it's page 874 in the Bibles. The parable of the lost sheep. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. The parable of the lost coin. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The parable of the prodigal son. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to his father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Here ends the reading. Well, good morning again, everyone. 
feels like I was just up here. So grateful to be here with you this Sunday. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Stephen Atherton. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. I'm really excited to be continuing on in our series here in Luke. So for those of you that don't know, my son Malachi has been learning ancient Indonesian martial arts. Yeah, it's super cool. And he absolutely loves it. And so naturally, as I've watched him practice and see his instructor show him the fine details of this martial arts, being a guy and watching him, like, you know, punching the air and everything, I'm like, oh, yeah, that looks fun. I want to do that, too. That looks awesome. So a few months ago, while at one of his practices, I told his instructor that I really wanted to practice just straight-up street fighting. I want to know how to best respond when I'm in a dark alley alone, because that's what guys do, right? We just go hang out in dark alleys by ourselves, waiting for something to happen. I want to do, uh, know what to do in that situation. And he told me, he's like, you know what? That's a great idea. I was like, oh, I really didn't think that was going to be a great idea, but okay. He's like, and you know what? I have the perfect guy for you to fight. And he's here right now. And so I want you to fight him right now. It's like, what? I, oh, I really thought I was going to get some kind of training in this, but okay, cool. Let's see what happens. So I got really, really nervous. I started sweating bullets. And I was like, okay, I, I know I'm going to get knocked out so fast. And then as the guy walked through the crowd, he was a five foot nothing, 120 pounds, soaking wet little guy that walks out and he was like waving his arms around like this. I'm like, what is this? Who is this guy? And in my head, I started laughing. I'm like, okay, like this has got to be a joke, right? Like I'm 205, six foot. I could just crush him. I could just lay on him and just crush him. I don't want to hurt him. And before I could have another thought, I was on the ground, half blacked out with a bruised esophagus. Like, well, okay, that did not go the direction that I thought it was going to go. Come to find out this guy was actually a third degree black belt, and he could probably wipe out anyone in the room with his pinky finger. See, I assumed he wasn't good enough. I assumed that I was superior because I was built a certain way. But wow, was I wrong about that one. So as we get into our passage for Luke today in Luke 15, we're going to see this, this scenario play out with the Pharisees and their perception and assumption of what types of people God is looking for. With this idea in mind, as we go through this, for us here today, that when we forget what God is looking for, we might be prone to start looking like the wrong thing. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord God in heaven, we uh, come before you. I come before you um, in desperate need of you, Lord God, as always. Lord God, I pray this morning as we get into your word, Lord, that you would speak through me. Lord God, that you uh, would just help each of us see clearly what it is you would have for us today in this incredible passage. Lord, just the beauty of you seeking the lost, finding, rejoicing, Lord, we are so thankful and grateful for the lives you've given us and pray that we would each leave here today more on fire for you. Love you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. 
If you haven't yet, please open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, they should be right there in the chair in front of you. In all of Luke 15, this entire chapter is a response to the Pharisees calling Jesus out for being with tax collectors and sinners. And they've done this so many times in this book so far. Because at the time, these Pharisees and scribes saw the world split into two different categories. You had on one side the righteous, holy people, and then on the other side of it, you had the unclean, unrighteous sinners. The the Pharisees wanted a complete and utter separation from the unclean. They saw a chasm between them and the sinner with the clear assumption that God only wanted what they thought were perfectly righteous people. Some of these leaders even took it so far that they would refuse to teach God's word to these second-class citizens. With our narrative continuing, we see Jesus once again doing the unthinkable, doing the most culturally upside-down thing that he could do. He was with these unclean, unworthy, broken sinners. Verse 1 and 2 say this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Jesus was making a place for them at his table. And he was encouraging them to eat with him. And verse 2 here says that Jesus wasn't just with them and eating with them, but that he was receiving them. This little word receive is significant to the section of scripture we get to walk through today. Because it helps inform the tone and the purpose of Jesus telling the coming three parables. This word receive means to eagerly await or expect and look for. And this isn't the first time we see this word in this book, actually. Six different times it's used. Six. A couple examples of this would be in 225, Simeon was, same word here, eagerly awaiting or expecting, looking for the consolation of Israel. 238, Anna the prophetess spoke to those in the temple who were eagerly awaiting, expecting, looking for the redemption of Israel. In 1236, Jesus says to be like men who are eagerly awaiting, expecting, looking for the return of the master from the wedding feast, and so on. One pastor explains it like this. Jesus is not just receiving sinners. He's looking for them eagerly and awaiting their coming. He has his eye out for them. The word receive sounds passive, but Jesus is not passive. He is seeking sinners and tax gatherers to come to him and eat with him. This word receive shows us Jesus actively seeking. But not just seeking, seeking people the Pharisees thought shouldn't even be taught. The people that they assumed would be the last ones. But God would go after the lost ones. With this in mind, we see throughout this chapter, Jesus explaining through parables what is happening when he eagerly awaits, expects, and looks for 
the lost. Each parable seeing Jesus, the beautiful savior that actively pursues the lost, finds the lost and rejoices when the lost are found. Helping at the end reflect on our own lives, understanding that when we forget what God is looking for, we may be prone to start looking like the wrong thing. With three points that we're going to be seeing this morning, I apologize. I'm not going to have any slides on the screen, um, but I will try to reiterate these as we go through the message. The three points we're going to be looking at are the lost sheep, which is three through seven, the lost coin, eight through 10, and the lost son, 11 through 31, that Jesus is receiving. Taking us to our first point in the first parable of Jesus receiving the lost sheep. Starting in verse three. So he told, told them this parable, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Another preacher once said, No creature strays more easily than a sheep. None is more heedless and none so incapable of finding its way back to the flock. When once gone astray, it will bleat for the flock and still run on in the opposite direction to the place where the flock is. Church, it's not a mistake that Jesus uses sheep as an example of humanity. He is the great shepherd that we are the sheep of the pasture, an example the people of the time would have known well with their experience in the fields. An example that honestly might've been a little offensive to them when they first heard it. Because sheep, my friends, are not the brightest light bulb in the cookie jar. Sheep are at times, at all times, in need of the shepherd's guidance. They're at all times in need of his protection and at all times in desperate need when they go astray. As we just saw from the quote, sheep are notorious for wandering off, trying to find their way back, but going the wrong direction the entire time. When left to their own devices, they will go the wrong way. Sheep need their shepherd. Jesus' very intentional parable brings to light some powerful truth as the Pharisees try to call him out for the treachery of being with the weak and the broken. Pharisees at the time taught that God would receive sinners only who sought after him hard enough and earnestly enough with the proof that they were righteous enough. This parable is Jesus pointing to the polar opposite thought process that the Pharisees had. In this parable, we don't see the shepherd yelling at the top of his lungs to get back here or figure it out. Even, I guess you'll get back here if you're smart enough. If you're a smart enough little sheep, you'll get back here eventually. No. It says the shepherd runs. 
It says he leaves his other sheep in the open country. Which tells me he's not just meandering the field, just looking about. But he goes into the thick of it for the sake of this little sheep. That is true love and care. But it doesn't end there, right? This not only shows the shepherd going after the lost sheep, but also that he doesn't just grab the sheep when he finds it and drags it back. It says he lays it on his shoulders in his kindness. Brings to mind Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me, he guides me, he restores my soul. At the end of the first parable, the shepherd, after receiving or intently looking for the sheep, finding it, bringing it back, he doesn't just set it down and go about his business either. It says he rejoices. He brings all of his neighbors and friends to the party because of that one little sheep. His little sheep is back. It says there is joy in all of heaven for the one that repents and comes to understand the truth of who Jesus is and what he came to do. Even though the sheep had left was far off, the shepherd went after it. There is more joy when someone comes to understand true repentance than someone who thinks they are so holy, have it all together that they don't need repentance. It's clear from Jesus' words already that not only were the Pharisees wrong about the type of people God was going after, but when, that, when these people, that, but that these people were those that they never would have expected and they never thought would be celebrated. Jesus, the upside-down shepherd that actively pursues the lost, finds the lost, and rejoices when the lost are found. These people can't do it on our own. We can't do it on our own like the sheep. Jesus immediately takes us into the second parable with our second point of the lost coin. This is verses 8 through 10. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. In the same vein as the parable of the lost sheep, Jesus continues with another parable that lays out a scenario of something being lost. Here we see a woman who loses one out of 10 coins and rips her house apart to find it. I want you to take a second and think about the last time you lost something that was precious to you and the lengths that you went to to find it. So if you all didn't know, I'm a pretty sentimental guy. If you saw the giant tubs of random stuff I have from being a kid, you'd be like, why in the world? I have receipts from like Walmart that I, I'm like, I have no idea why I even have that. I have Disneyland tickets. You would think, oh, that's cool. You have your Disneyland tickets. No, I have my entire family's Disneyland tickets that for some reason I kept. And one type of thing that I love the most, and you guys might... 
I probably shouldn't say this. I love stuffed animals, okay? Since I was a kid, I've always loved stuffed animals. That's just something that's sentimental to me. Like, it reminds me of my childhood. It reminds me of simpler times, you know? After I got all of my things from my parents' house in Arizona, all of my lots and lots and lots of things, there was one stuffed animal I wanted to find. His name was Mr. Pound Puppy. I love Mr. Pound Puppy. I had him since I was five years old, and he was the most special stuffed animal I had. So I went through all of my stuff, and I'm looking for it, and I couldn't find Mr. Pound Puppy anywhere. So I ripped apart boxes. I ripped apart the basement. Yeah, this is, this is over a stuffed animal, guys. I got through the basement and couldn't find it. So I called my mom. I'm like, Mom, go into your basement. See if you can find it. She couldn't find it. So the next time I was in Arizona, I ripped their basement apart. My dad was not happy about it. But you know what? I found Mr. Pound Puppy. And it was a great day. It was a glorious day. There was rejoicing over Mr. Pound Puppy being found. Now, all of my other treasures were still important to me. But finding that one, that what that was lost was so special and joyous. In this parable, we see the same thing unfold. The, the woman loses this precious coin and does not stop until she's found it. A picture of God pursuing the lost world to bring the lost to himself. And at the end, when the coin is found, just like the end of the first parable, there is a party. There's a Mr. Pound Puppy level party happening. All of heaven rejoices over the one sinner who repents, who understands the truth of their need for a savior, the one who understands it's not by works. The sheep couldn't save itself. The shepherd is the only way. The coin couldn't find itself. The searcher seeking diligently is the only way. And in the same breath, Jesus Christ is the only way. Turning to him and repenting is the only way. Jesus, the upside-down seeker that actively pursues the loss, finds the loss, and rejoices when the loss are found. Church family, within these two parables, the truth of salvation emerges that not only does our incredible, loving God pursue the lost, broken sinner, but that he makes alive the one who believes and repents. The one who believes and repents is brought into the everlasting family of the one true king, and there is a party in heaven when even one comes to understand this truth. On the backside of this, we should still remember Throughout these parables, and I feel like this is, this is something that, that can be forgotten as you're going through these parables, Jesus is talking directly to the Pharisees here. He's talking directly to the Pharisees to point out the truth. Again, there's more rejoicing over one of these that they thought were second-class citizens. There's more rejoicing than anyone who looks like the Pharisees who believes they're so righteous they don't need to repent. Now, another thing that with the Pharisees that we might lose sight of as we see them push back on Jesus so hard is that these men did love God. They truly did, but they saw a twisted, manipulated view of God that they could save themselves through their holiness, that the tasks and deeds they did and so repentance was unnecessary. Now, were these Pharisees not still human beings made in the image of God, still precious to God? 
Of course they were. But Jesus is trying to point out the truth to them. Jesus points to them the actuality of their desperate need, our desperate need, and that there's nothing that can be done to earn that. I read an article recently that talked through the genius of Jesus in these parables, specifically in the next one that's used consistently and is beloved by so many, that being the parable of the prodigal son. One of the elements of Jesus' genius is the way these parables are put together. You have the sheep, the coin, and then the prodigal son that all point to Jesus seeking the lost, repentance of the lost, and rejoicing when one comes. All of these things are not just looking at the tax collectors and sinners, but also the righteous who think they don't need to repent. Both camps are lost and in need of a savior. Both camps need to be rescued. The assumption of who God is pursuing goes both ways. It's not just the second-class citizens, but the ones who think that they are better and don't need saving. You're going to see a detailed look at all of this in the next parable, seeing three types of people emerge, three types. The person openly sinning, living for self. The person who sees that they need a savior, a person with a repentant heart, and the overly righteous person that thinks they are better than and more deserving than the sinner. With the two previous parables complete, Jesus goes into the longest parable he ever shared. One so rich and deep, we could spend a month on this one parable. But since we can't do that, I'm going to do my absolute best to bring out the incredibly deep, beautiful, and awe-inspiring truths Jesus brings out here. To understand the difference between the two parables we just talked about and the one to come, a, a pastor once said, what's different about the parable of the lost son is that the misery of his lostness is spelled out, the nature of his repentance is spelled out, and the lavish enthusiasm of the father is spelled out more fully than the other two parables. Taking us to point three, the lost son, which is 11 through 31. We're going to start in 11 through 13. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. These verses right here are giving us a glimpse into the first person we talked about, the person openly sinning, living for self. At the very beginning of this parable, we see something that's all too familiar and common with humanity. And that's the feeling that there's something better out there. That you don't want to be held back, held down, that you, want, that you don't want someone controlling you. You want to do what you want to do. Sometimes even as believers, we want God's good gifts more than we want him. We as humans have this innate desire to be our own kings, building our own kingdoms, because we think we know best. We want to make our own rules so that we can be as happy as we think we can make ourselves. 
The son, this parable, is living this out. He's tired of living under the rules of his father's house. He doesn't want anyone to tell him what to do. So it says he demands his inheritance. This would have been unheard of. It would have been unheard of at the time. It was basically as if the son was saying he wished his father was dead. Because no son would receive his inheritance until his father passed. But the father does at the son, as the son asks, giving him a third of the entire estate, which is custom at the time for the secondborn. This is painting a picture for us of all sinners who waste their potential privileges and refuse any relationship with the Father, choosing a, a life of sinful indulgence, choosing to walk down what seems like the easy road, the road of self-fulfillment, self-satisfaction, and self-gratification, thinking that they know best. So as the parable continues, the son takes the inheritance, and it says he heads out to a far country and lives a reckless life. And this is actually where the word prodigal comes from. This reckless life it's talking about in translation is that of complete and utter debauchery. He was living the prodigal life, doing whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted. But as quickly as the money came and what he thought was a happy life came, it was taken in an instant. Verse 14 through 16. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. This son wasted all of his inheritance and found himself in a place of now having nothing with a famine that just so happens to hit simultaneously. And the result is having to go into the fields to feed pigs. At the time, this, is, this would have been the most heinous job for the Jewish people to even think of doing as pigs were considered the most unclean of all creatures. Does this sound familiar in the way the Pharisees looked at people that weren't like them? The son fully disconnected from the father to attach himself to the world. And in the end, found himself in the most vile place imaginable. Not only that, in this vile place, he was so hungry, he wanted to eat the most unclean animal's food. And was refused even that. This is an ominous look at a life for the son disconnected from the Father. And for all of humanity, this is an ominous look at a life separate from God. In this, we're faced with the undeniable truth that when a relationship with God is refused, when an attachment to the creator of all is refused, you will be attached to something else. Something that at the moment might seem to fill the void Something that at the moment may seem to be fun and make you happy, but at the end of the day, these attachments outside of the one true God will send us to the swine troughs, either in this life or in the next. The section of the parable doesn't just end at the sun with the pigs. It ends with a revelation. 17 through 19. 
But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. This next section not only brings out the second person that we're talking about, the one with a heart of true repentance, but also in this, in this revelation of the younger son, there are three parts that emerge, three parts bringing out the truth of what repentance, true repentance looks like. The first is coming to himself. He came to the realization he was wrong and not just wrong, but completely and utterly in error with what he had done. He recognizes his brokenness and his need with the second part being a desire to confess what he had done wrong. As the son realizes how much he's hurt the father, how terrible his deeds were, and the desire to acknowledge this before his dad. The second part of repentance is a visual of any sinner coming to the realization of their sins, understanding the hurt it's caused the one who loves us more than anything. With the desire to honor him, turn from our sinful ways, turning from the sin, turning to our Savior. With the last piece of the puzzle, an acknowledgement of not deserving anything. He deserved absolutely nothing, just as we deserve nothing. We deserve wrath for our wrongdoing. We are destitute without the Father. And with this understanding of repentance, the Son arises and heads towards his Father's house. 20 through 24. And he arose and came to his Father, but while he was still a long way off, his Father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the Son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your Son. But the Father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. And they began to celebrate. Before he even got to the house, the father saw his son from far off. He ran to him and he embraced him. What an incredible visual and reminder of the word that we talked about at the beginning, receiving. The father received this son in several ways. Not only was he awaiting the return of his son, but he received him fully and completely. When the son came to understand the error of his ways, understand his need for his father and his need to repent, he goes back and is received in this incredible way. And here we see the father doesn't begrudgingly tell him, I guess you can come back. He doesn't grant him the request to be a servant. Like, I mean, you're here. I guess you can just work for me now after what you did. He doesn't get mad and yell at him. He rejoices his son was dead and is now alive. What an awesome picture Jesus is giving us here. This is the type of person Jesus is talking about. This is the type of person all heaven rejoices in, the one that sees the truth, that believes and repents, the one that sees their need for a savior. 
We see the lost and the found and the rejoicing when anyone puts their faith and trust in Christ. It's a celebration. They were dead and now they're alive. But the, the story doesn't end here. A third party, a third person emerges, the overly righteous person that thinks they're better and more deserving than the sinner. Verse 25, now his older brother, is, now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. He said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat, so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. As a reminder, Jesus is having this conversation, sharing these parables with the Pharisees. And this section would have been the part to hit them between the eyes, hopefully, as they looked in the mirror of Jesus' words. This older son was not happy because of his brother's return. He was so upset because how dare the father celebrate this younger son that lived this prodigal life? How dare you? I've done everything for you. I've been perfect, and you never even gave me a young lamb. Because I did this. I deserve it. Me, me, me. Why does he get it and I don't? I've done everything for you. I've served you. I've done this. I've done that. This older brother was so caught up in the works, he missed the joy of the younger brother returning. He missed the joy of the dead being alive. You notice here, he doesn't even address his father by his name. He just goes into his rant. It says, he answered his father, look. Versus the younger son that approaches the father on his knees, asking for forgiveness. Father, father, forgive me. With Jesus ending the parable in the most succinct way possible by saying, Son, you were always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. It's fitting to celebrate he was lost and is found. Pharisees, don't you see there should be joy and celebration in anyone coming to understand the truth? You are not better than, you are not more deserving than, and in fact, you are in the same boat as the prodigal sinner if you don't see the truth that you are too broken, that you too are broken and in need of a savior. You too must believe and repent. Jesus is actually lovingly pointing the Pharisees to understand the truth. That in the three types of people we talked about, the ones Jesus is rejoicing over are the ones that believe and repent. Religious or dirty sinner. Times it might be easy to fall in the boat of Pharisees, assuming we know the people God is running after. When we forget what God is looking for, we might start looking like the wrong thing. Pharisees assumed they knew the types of people God was looking for. The elite, the perfect 
And in that, they were the older brother, the third person, thinking they deserved it all. As believers, are there times that we can fall into the category of the third person? Other times we can think that we are better than others because of how we look on the outside. Because of how religious we might look. I go to church. I do communion. I do this. I do that. Look at that guy over there. I am so much better than that guy. There have been times in my life that when I forget about the one who sought me out who rescued me. And when that happens, I can start to look like the Pharisees. When I forget that I was lost in darkness, deserving nothing, I can look at people and see myself as better than. At times I'm a Pharisee when I don't remember the truth, thinking, God, I'm not like that kind of person over there. Look at that guy. He doesn't go to church. He sleeps around. He's the worst of the worst. Thank God I'm not like that. It's so sad when we forget the truth of the gospel and the one who rescues and restores. He goes after the lost. Other times that we can lead towards the life of the prodigal son, either as an unbeliever pushing God away or even as a believer knowing God's good so you just live in a life of sin, running from the truth. When I was younger, this was an issue of mine. Living a life in areas that weren't honoring to God, but doing it anyway because it's what I wanted to do. Stephen wants to do this, so I'm just going to go do it. Sorry, God. I just, I just kind of want to be over here right now. Forgetting the truth of being rescued out of darkness. Not wanting to live life that way. Desiring not to live life that way because of a desire to honor the one who sought me and saved me. Or are you in the category of the person with the repentant heart? the lost person that realizes they're in need of a savior that knows they are lost and can't do it on their own, the one that sees the truth that without the shepherd, the seeker, the father, there is nothing. Even in this category, if you are an unbeliever, know Jesus is the only way. If you are sitting here today and you are a believer, this is a daily thought process. Romans tell us, tells us we should be renewing our mind daily, remembering this repentance, remembering and desiring to repent and remembering the gospel that saved you and restored you. If you're in the first category of the person that thinks they are good enough, that looks down on those lesser than, I want to remind you today of the loving Jesus that came to seek and save the lost. I want to remind you of this Jesus that if you have put your faith and trust in him has rescued you. He is not looking for the people that think they are righteous enough, but the ones with a repentant heart of their incorrect view of righteousness. If you fall in line with the person openly living in sin, I would beg of you to consider the truth of what Jesus did that set you free. Even though a sinful life might seem fun for a time, eventually you will end up with the pigs. 
believe and repent today. And if you are a believer, if you feel yourself leaning this way, remember how he sought you and saved you. Remember that it's better to be with the Father than living like the world. And last but not least, remember Jesus Christ, the one who seeks and saves, the shepherd, the seeker, the Father that gave it all up and rejoices over the one who believes and repents, which will help us to daily desire to live out our belief and repentance. Church, when we accept Christ, we're saved. But to ensure we don't lean towards the way of the Pharisees or the sinner, again, we must constantly keep the gospel in mind. Consistently make it a habit to repent of the things we've done against him and remember the love of the Father. That even though we deserve nothing, has given us everything through Christ. Just as I assume the small guy at the beginning wasn't big enough or strong enough, church, let's never assume what God is doing and the people he's doing it through. Jesus, the beautiful Savior that actively pursues the lost, finds the lost, and rejoices when the lost are found. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word again. Just thank you uh, for the gospel. Thank you for the good news that we are set free if we put our faith and trust in you. If we believe, Jesus, what you did for us, that you lived the perfect life, you died on the cross, you rose again and ascended so that we could be back in a right relationship with you. God, that truth that sets us free, you rejoice when we come to understand that. And I pray that daily we would desire to see you more clearly and desire to be closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen.